You're listening to Two Dudes, One Disc, where the most sought-after music journalists, the greatest minds in the history of... You really gonna make me read this sh- Just read it! Take on the most influential albums of all time. Here's your host, Michael Heideman, on Two Dudes, One Disc. Welcome in, everybody. This is another episode of Two Dudes, One Disc. It is so great, great to be here today on this beautiful, shining Chicago morning. And one of the, my favorite albums of all time, and we're going to dive into why it is and what the connection between me and this guest is in a second. But I guess I should introduce him. What I might say is one of the most penultimate Elton John fans in all of history. Wow. The master of the keys, <laughs> the golden voice himself, wow. Elton Jim Toronto. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate you be uh, not only being invited, but uh, invited to talk about uh, my favorite album, um, Elton John. I've been listening to Elton John since I was nine years old. I hate to tell you how many years that is. Um, but uh, this album uh, has just holds a very special uh, place in my heart, not only for the quality of the songs mm-hmm. and the album, but just the uh, the time when it was released in my life, the memories I have of that time, what it was like to be an Elton John fan at that time in 1975, and and then the album itself, its packaging is amongst the the best and coolest and historic in rock album history too so there's quite a bit that uh, that uh, endears me to this album there's a lot that has to be fleshed out and you're exactly right about this album cover um, it's one of the most extraordinary think uh, if you haven't seen it before think you know sergeant peppers i guess ask of elton john style when I actually saw this album for the first time, and before I ever met you, before I was in radio, I was in college, and I was out in Las Vegas. And it's so funny how Elton came into my life the way that he did, because you know you know Crocodile Rock, you know all the hits that he has, Daniel, your song, but I was staying at a hotel, and all of a sudden I turned a corner, and this beautiful, beautiful mural of Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy was shown right in my face. And it's at the Hard Rock, isn't it? It's at the Hard Rock, right. yes. And I was like, this album is, it's like, it spoke to me. It, like a painting that, you know, just said, you need to have me in your life. Then that week, I went back to Utah, went to a record store, <laughs> and of course, what's the album right there in the front? <laughs> Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. It's the only album, it's probably the first album that I ever bought, like my own vinyl that I didn't get or steal from my dad, was, <laughs> was this album. Uh, it, it came out May 1975 by MCA, and it debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200. That's the first, it was the first album in history, the Billboard chart started in the mid-50s, and uh, Frank Sinatra had never done it, the Beatles had never done it, Elvis had never done it, Michael Jackson before then had never done it. Uh, any legend, any huge, uh, you, you know, Carole King, you want to talk about either, uh, you know, artists or just amazing albums, no album had ever entered the charts at number one. Now that's Jeez. commonplace. It happens all the time, the way that albums are... Um, 
are released and how they're tracked with the uh, with the sound scan and things like that. Yeah, but it's, it, it's almost like you need to get have it debut right. at number one. Yeah, now. but but this was truly uh, an, an historic uh, moment, and not only was it an historic moment for Elton and for his career, but then he became only the second person to have an album come into the charts at number one because his next album was released in November of 70, uh, <laughs> November of 75, Rock of the Westies, and that album debuted at number one. So he had he had he did it twice in a row, and and that's the enormity of his um, career, and that's why I say what it was like to be uh, an Elton John fan in 1975. It's almost as it almost is like it is today, right mm-hmm. now, with mm-hmm. the release of the Rocket Man film, which did very well at the box office, mm-hmm. a lot of buzz, potential Oscar buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got his farewell tour. Um, still going. It'll be back here in the United States in the fall. In the fall, he will also be releasing his autobiography. Wow. Which he has never done before. It's like he planned this all. Well, hopefully hopefully he did. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so as, as I said, in 1975, it was impossible. And, and I can't even... It, it's hard to explain mm-hmm. to anyone today that was not around what it was like to be an Elton John fan or how big his career was because you have to remember in 1975 pop music or rock music was still and I know it sounds crazy to someone your age but rock music was still considered a niche music it was still considered something of a fad Mm -hmm. If, if you didn't read Rolling Stone or Cream or Crawdaddy or Hit Parade or some of these rock music album or, or magazines, mm-hmm. you didn't know about rock music. It was not in the papers. Hey, there was I, no internet. I still subscribe to Crawdaddy, just so you know. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. But my point is that it was still a niche, and and yet, uh, and there is actually in the Rocket Man film they do it. It's very quick, but they do make a um, a quick reference at one point around 1975. Elton John's albums were responsible for five percent. Of all the albums sold in the world. Mm-hmm. Now you say 5%. That's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But 5% in the entire world. I'm not exaggerating. In Chicago, um, especially on the, if you went down the dial on the pop stations, mm-hmm. you would hit every one of your presets on the car. And you would hit an Elton John song Jeez. on every station. It was that big. You have to remember Michael Jackson and and uh, with Thriller mm-hmm. became huge, but that was aided by MTV. Yeah, yeah. Where that's you a good had point. a visual and you had a channel twenty four hours a day mm-hmm. playing. You know all those songs, Pretty Young Thing and Thriller, and uh, you know all the songs on that to help promote and create that mania. Elton John did not have that. He had the radio and he had his concerts. Jeez. And to have and have equaled and in my perception even uh exceeded that. Uh it was an incredible time and this album as I said was was kind of the pinnacle um because uh surprisingly he broke up his band mm-hmm. after this album. This album was so successful. Um, it, it did have the, the hit single, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the produ- the story that I've always heard was that his producer, Gus Dudgeon, who was, um, produced this album and was responsible for, in great part for creating that Elton John sound, mm-hmm. um, he kind of said to Elton, and I don't know if it was done purposely or not, like he may have just said to him one day in the recording studio afterwards, wow, the band can't sound any better than they do right now. 
And I don't know if that was a good thing or not to say, because in Elton's mind, he always is trying to be better or to, not to you know continue what he's done before. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so right after the release of this album, he split up his longtime band. You know, he's kind of a diva. I've, I've heard that about him when oh, it comes definitely. to... And by the way, that first song, uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, one of the tightest, like... To this day, there's country bands out there in Nashville who have teams of producers who couldn't make that kind of music. Let's move on to the next song. Can I just say quick. one thing? There's a oh, great yeah? lyric in, the, first of all, that song, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. What you should understand is that this is an autobiographical album. It was written by his lyricist, Bernie Taupin. Elton John does not write lyrics. Uh, Bernie Taupin wrote this an, as an autobiographical song of Elton's and Bernie's meeting and the struggles that they went through and the friendships and the bonds that they created going up to their first album in 1969. So it covers about a two-year period. They mm-hmm. met in 1967, mm-hmm. and their first album, Empty Sky, came out in 1969. So so this album covers that with different <laughs> songs that refer to different events that happened in their lives, both individually okay. or collectively. Okay. And so I just want to say, so Captain Fantastic is Elton John, mm-hmm. and Bernie Taupin, who was born in the rural part of northern England, is the Brown Dirt Cowboy. But there's such a great lyric. And, and, and it works on so many levels. There's a right at the beginning, it says, Captain Fantastic, raised and regimented. And you say, well, what's so big about that? Uh-huh. Okay, well, first of all, raised and regimented, some great alliteration there with the R sound. Secondly, raised and regimented. Elton John's father was very strict, and he, you know, wasn't very open and loving to his son mm-hmm. and he made him do things the right way and yeah, a lot of rules in the house in the movie too right. mm-hmm. so his upbringing was regimented correct mm-hmm. and then his name is reginald oh, okay okay i see so raised and regimented that word regimented works on two levels his name before he was elton john reginald mm-hmm. and the upbringing that he had a very regimented upbringing i just love that it's three words and there's so much going on it there. just speaks to uh bernie's songwriting abilities oh, he's so yeah. amazing by the way can i just say that we just wrote a book on elton john and we're not even to the second song yet. <laughs> <laughs> we're 40 minutes well, into the you, podcast when, when you start me on this subject you it's argue, like a lawnmower it just won't turn yeah, out you have you. To, yeah you have to realize i'm more of a riding mower than than a pull mower. <laughs> All right, let's get to the second song, Tower of Babel. Snow, cement, so you mentioned something really interesting that Elton doesn't write any lyrics to his songs. No. It's, and he does that in the movie, and I'm, a lot of these movie references are not going to stand the test of time. I'm sure somebody listening to this in 50 years are going to be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's been 15 Elton John movies by then. But right. <laughs> he talks about how he doesn't want to get his emotions out or something. What's the, what's the idea no, well, behind he, not songwriting? Well, he's just not, he just can't write lyrics. I mean, he, and, and he, has, uh, he has written early in his career before he was even Elton John, when he was still Reg Dwight. Uh, you know, he wrote some songs that he wrote the lyrics for and they were very simple uh almost naive very childish you know moon and june kind of you know rhymings mm-hmm. not very deep 
he's he's a music guy. He has melodies uh, in his head. Now, the other side of the coin is as a songwriter, he is a reactive songwriter. There's only a few times where he has come up with a melody first. Yeah. And then Bernie has, and said to Bernie, can you fit a lyric to this? For the most part, and it's been this way since day one, um, Bernie Taupin has given him a stack of lyrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Elton John has put them at the... Uh, Puts them up at the piano and reads the lyrics and then begins to find chords and play songs. It's 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 reactive. I've seen on, on, a, on a TV special uh, about 20 years ago, in the audience, somebody brought up a manual for a washer and dryer. <laughs> and they said, no if you can, said, you say you write songs to anything. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the directions for a washer and dryer. And he put it down, he looked at it for about a minute, and he had a tune, and he started singing the to this tune, completely made up on the spot. So he is not a lyric writer. Now what's and and, and, and as you mentioned the, the movie Rocket Man and, and it is portrayed there, and this is true, and that's why the his 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 life story is really like a movie. And it almost is it talk about fate. Um, he answered there was a, an ad in a, a in a music magazine mm-hmm. by a record uh, company. Oh, <laughs> we lost a, our camera went limp. Keep, keep Go ahead, going I'll with keep your going. story. And so uh, he answered this ad that was in the uh, a record uh, magazine looking for new artists and talent. This was 1967, just after uh, Sgt. Pepper. Everybody wants to be in a band. Everybody wants to be a rock star. And so this uh, record company is looking for new and unheard, undiscovered talent. So Reg Dwight, Elton John, responds to this ad, and so does Bernie Taupin, who lives, as I said, up in the Lincolnshire area area of, uh, of England, a uh, good two and a half, three hours out of London. And he sends uh, a, a response to this ad and says, look, I can't play music, but I can write lyrics. Elton John comes in for his interview and says, look, I could play music, but I can't write lyrics. And so this guy, Ray, Ray Williams, who who was working with the record company, said to Elton, well, look, uh, here, here's a stack of lyrics by a guy that can't play music, but can write lyrics. See what you can do with these. Wow. I mean, there is no reason that those two should ever have met. No, out of all the people in the that, entire that's world. That's what I'm saying. And then it turns out that they become one of the most famous songwriting teams in history. So it is, uh, it's, it's a crazy, uh, uh, you know, circumstance. Fell yeah, again. I, I <laughs> <laughs> all of our fans on Facebook Live are going to be like, what's going on here? Uh, so, but it's really interesting because you think about Lennon and McCartney and how they t- kind of tie in both of the names, and there had to been some fights about it. But Bernie never wanted any credit for these songs. Well, he gets credit. I mean, well, obviously, yeah, he's, he's a lyric writer. But in terms of, uh, I mean, once you know his his part in the process is 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 very limited. You know, he he is the catalyst. He is the impetus. The songs start with him, and Elton John, and on many occasions, uh, has said there would be no Elton John without Bernie Taupin. And that is true in some respects. I also don't think there'd be a Bernie Taupin without Elton John. It really is the combination of both their talents. But uh, Bernie Taupin does start the engine. He is the one who submits the lyrics first, and Elton writes to those lyrics. And the song that you just played, The Tower of Babel, is basically um, about, once again, in their continued, in this story of how they began their struggle, uh, that 
song is kind of about the dark side of the music business and what and and all the different kinds of uh, kind of sleazy people that you meet yeah. who are involved and so that's why it's it's it, there's a line that says it's party time you know the tower of babel uh, is in the bible this uh, this horribly sinful place mm-hmm. that uh, god and, and that's where there's a reference to sodom and gomorrah which are these two you know sinful cities so basically bernie Taupin is uh you know comparing the some of the first people in kind of the behind the scenes world of the music business to this time in in biblical history when people were just sinning and there were no rules and yeah. it was just kind of so once again that was kind of the people that they were meeting as they began their struggle up and it's funny because he, he's such a great songwriter and such a great lyricist uh that he kind of ties these in but elton such a good mel- melodic voice he changes the word to babel Right. Well, we, well, well, we'll think Town about of Babel. It. <laughs> party time. The Tower of Babel. I mean, think about it from Benny and the Jets. You know, I, I you know, I read it in a magazine, mm-hmm. not magazine. In the song Levon, he says uh, garage instead of garage. <laughs> so he always plays around or at least he used to play around with uh, with pronunciations and with words. You know, Crocodile Rock. You've yeah. heard that song a thousand times. Yeah. Well, there's that he to jam it in. He goes Crocodile Rockin'. Yeah, you know, you know, he's not just mumbling. Uh, rocking, yeah. Crocodile, it's crocodile. Right, he's trying mm-hmm. to sneak it into the to the measure of the music there. And he he loves using those big. This is just a song, a song, a lyricist kind of thing. When you're on stage and you want to sing out to a crowd, sing those great e's. Those e's. Oh yeah, are so much more melodic and and fit in these songs better. That are especially bright and upbeat that Elton writes. Uh, so maybe that's why he kind of changed the 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 wording of that. But it's incredible to see how much work went into these songs. Like you don't even think about. The, the immense amount of time that these two must have spent together to fit these songs. Well, like, like I said, though, correct. it's funny. They they do not sit in the same room. Oh, they, really? They No, as I said, Bernie writes the lyrics, and he'll give him 15, 20 lyrics, mm-hmm. and Elton will sit down at the piano. Now, sometimes Bernie may be in the other room, or nowadays he might be in the studio around, but really the, uh, the, the process that they have used for now – uh, you know, over 50 years, they started writing together in 1967, um, is basically Bernie says, here's 10 lyrics, Jeez. and Elton sits down, and he goes, and sometimes he, he'll read through a lyric, and if it doesn't really, um, you know, strike at him, he'll mm-hmm. he'll turn the page. I mean, he may come back to one again, but at the time, if it doesn't strike him right away, many times, and... Uh, there's actually a, a great documentary if people haven't seen it. It's called Tantrums and Tierras, and it's a documentary about Elton, and it was made about 20 years ago. Hmm. They actually put him on a clock. They have him in the studio, and they didn't do this. They didn't. He didn't know this was happening. Yeah. But yeah. he they, they he was in the studio doing a song for the 60s uh, singer Lulu, who did uh, To Sir With Love. Ooh. And so there's this lyric that he never saw before, mm-hmm. and when he puts it down... They take a shot of the clock, and they watch him going through the chords and finding the thing, and they show the clock, and it's 10 minutes, and now he's got a, he's got a chord sequence. Okay, okay. And then by 20 minutes, he and Lulu are singing a song. 
Now, it's not recorded yet, but in terms of the, the basic song. They got it down. Within 20 minutes. He had never seen these lyrics before. And within 20 minutes. And that is basically the way he continues to write today. Jeez. He wrote this album, Captain Fantastic, on a ship. He was on a cruise okay. from, uh, I can't remember what the direction was. It was either London to New York or New York to London. Uh-huh. But he wrote, he was sort of on quote-unquote vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote the 10 songs for this album on that cruise ship. Wait, Bernie or Elton? No, Elton. He Bernie was... gave him the lyrics. Oh, and then... Uh... So Elton was on this cruise ship. He had ship. a piano on this cruise ship? He, would, he went into, every day, he reserved the piano okay. that was on the cruise ship where they were entertaining. <laughs> and so for like two or three hours in the every afternoon, uh-huh. he would go in there with his little stack of lyrics, and he wrote this album on that cruise from you know this tra- this transatlantic cruise you know what you know what happens when you, you get all that water in your in your fingers you know after maybe that cruise ship and all the water <laughs> and everything maybe he had some bitter fingers that's oh. the next song that we have Ooh, coming up here See, like, nice segue yeah thank you very much and this is a great song too and once again now this song uh has a great line it's hard to write a song with bitter fingers mm-hmm. uh this refers to which if you saw the rocket man film mm-hmm. um there's a uh, their their music publisher one of their first people that helped them was a guy named Dick James, who was popular uh, because he was the the publisher of the Beatles music early on. Really? Yeah. I, see, I, I didn't, he didn't really that's make mention why, of that. That's why the there's movie. a picture of the Beatles in Dick James's office. See, nobody would pick up right. on that except for you. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Dick James was certainly a big name in the record world, um, and so uh, initially Elton John and Bernie Taupin were hired. Not as a singing artist and and uh, songwriter, mm-hmm. but just as pure songwriters to write songs for other people, mm-hmm. not for Elton to perform on their own. Wow! And so, but then they couldn't write for other people. They were writing these songs, and they didn't feel a connection to them because they weren't theirs. Yeah, yeah. So then, somebody in Dick James's uh, uh, company, a man named Steve Brown, said to them, "Look, you guys are talented, but you're writing songs that you don't care about. Yeah, write what you want to write about." And and Elton then had a connection, more of a connection to the to the songs when he was performing them rather than just writing them for someone else. So. The song "Bitter Fingers" mm-hmm. refers to this this kind of um, you know factory of of songwriters. Like, just write some songs today, yeah. and I'll give them to Engelbert Humperdinck and Lulu <laughs> or whoever was popular at the time. So that's why uh, you know there's some lyrics in there where it says, uh, "and and and uh, you might write a standard, lads." Mm-hmm. So churn them out thick and fast. Turn churn them out thick and fast, and we'll still pat your back. Meaning, just keep churning out songs, and maybe huh. one day you'll write one for yourselves or for someone. But just keep churning them out because I need songs for all these different artists. Well, you know, it's it's crazy to think that Bernie and Elton, when they were writing this, they actually needed to go through these things. And you were exactly right about this being an autobiographical yes um, kind of album because you can totally see the is. struggles that they go through. And it's funny because. You can almost feel the pain when Elton sings these songs. Well, like they they are his. Well, and that it's a it's a great point, and, and I'm glad that you have gleaned that 
because really the reason why I think this is my favorite Elton John album is not only for the quality of the of the songs because most people regard Goodbye Yellow Brick Road the double album from 1973 as his magnum opus as his masterpiece and there's no question uh, 17 songs on that album some amazing songs Funeral for a Friend Love Lies Bleeding which is an 11 minute you know, kind of uh, epic song. Yeah, yeah. Um, Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, uh, Saturday Nights Are Right for Fighting. Uh, there's another song, an album track called Harmony, which I believe is one of their best songs ever, which was which should have been released as a single. But so everybody points to, to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and and an iconic uh, cover as well. Yeah, yeah. But what I Great think artwork. is most. Uh, Appealing about Captain Fantastic, even though it doesn't have as many hits, just one hit from that album. To your point, is exactly correct. Elton, you know, don't forget, Bertie Taupin writes the lyrics. So, you know, he's writing about things in his life that he's mm-hmm. observing. And then Elton, you know, you know puts the music yeah, to it. Yeah, puts the music. But here, on this album, Elton knew exactly what reference... Because these songs were about him and Bernie. Yeah. So yeah. he had a, a real personal, emotional connection to every one of them because he knew exactly what this song was about. He knew exactly what reference Bernie was talking about. So to your point, when you hear his vocal performance as well as his, his, uh, his, mu- his musical performance on this album, it does feel... So much stronger, so mm-hmm. much more um, uh, engaged, so much more devoted and committed and personal to him because it is his personal story. It's it's incredible because, you know, a lot of people to this day, and I'm sure that are going into Rocket Man, did not think that Elton John had a ghostwriter or any kind of help at all with his music. So it's interesting to see them take on this story and be like, oh, you know. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, they didn't have a ghostwriter. I mean, they were writing the songs. But oh, they, that's what I meant. Yeah, yes. but they were going. They initially started as a songwriting team, writing songs for other people. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is an, it's an incredible life that they they both uh, led, and it's funny because. Elton often makes reference of the fact that they've been friends forever. They'd never had a fight. And it's probably because Bernie's in one room a the, million the, miles away. And then exactly. Well, that is exactly him. true because uh, personality-wise, <laughs> they are very different people. Mm-hmm. And if perhaps if over the 50 years or even you know 40 years ago, if they had been so close mm-hmm. and been in prox- close proximity and if they had been laboring over songs together yeah. and got in disagreements I don't like that note you exactly. know this, this word's wrong and, and how many creative teams have you seen that happen to where they're almost living on top of each other they don't last yeah, Lennon McCartney every almost, one of them everybody is broken up so since then. the fact that after 50 and, and Bernie and Elton did have a time there was a good six years where they did not write exclusively with each other mm-hmm. in the late 70s from about 1970 uh, through uh, 1983 they did not write a complete album on their own Elton started to collaborate with other people and Bernie did too he wrote the song We Built This City by Jefferson Starship no way really yes he also wrote okay. with uh, with, Alex, with Alice Cooper so uh, he wrote uh, a lot of range. He wrote Bernie. lyrics for other people for a time, and Elton wor- uh, worked with a, a couple of different um, lyricists. One named Gary Osborne, who wrote "Blue Eyes" mm-hmm. and "Little Genie," and uh, some some hits. But there's a big difference between the kind of hits that Elton wrote with other writers and Elton has written with Bernie Taupin. Yeah, let's talk about another one of those hits. Tell me where, when the whistle blows. Tell me when the whistle blows by Elton John. Now I love this song. I remember being, okay, what was I, 12 years old when this album came out. 
<laughs> and no. What yeah. were you doing when you were 12 years old? Well, I old? have to tell you. The, 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 I talked I talk about the, why this album is so important to me personally. I remember the exact time mm-hmm. when I bought this album. Because as I said once, once again... You know, in 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 you know fifty you know forty some years ago, you didn't know what day the album was going to be like. Now you know what day the album was going to drop. Drop, yeah. yes. All that unquote. BS. You didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You only what you knew is you went to the record store every week, mm-hmm. and then there was a new album by. So you went, oh, mm-hmm. uh, the, Elton John's got a new album, or Paul McCartney's got a new album, or that's how you knew. You went to the store, and it was out. Wait, Crawdaddy didn't even give you well, any heads up on that? They didn't really. Not on dates. You really didn't know. Come on. And so I will never forget. I walked into this. I was with my mom. We went to this department store in the northwest side of Chicago in my neighborhood. It was called Key's Department Store. It was just like, you know, some department store. But they did have a really good record department. So I would always go there. It wasn't huh. far from my house. And I had no idea. And I walk into the record department and... I'm not exaggerating because Elton John, as I said before, was so popular. They had two racks, the top rack and the second rack, that went, I would say, you know, 25 feet long, filled with just Captain Fantastic albums. (laughs) There was no other albums on those racks except Captain Fantastic. Well, that's been overwhelming. Yeah, it was. So I went, oh my God. You know, I never saw this album before. And like you said, when I saw the cover, oh, which yeah. is this amazing illustration by an illustrator who has sadly passed away. His name is Alan Aldridge. He did a lot of work for the Beatles uh, in the late 60s, a lot of their psychedelic things. And so I saw this Captain Fantastic uh, cover with this uh, this illustration of Elton flying on a piano and this <laughs> yeah. really cool uh, logo that says Captain Fantastic. And I was like, what the heck is this? And then I picked up the album. And not only was it great to look at, and you looked on the back, and there was more of his illustration. There's Bernie sitting in a little bubble Mm -hmm. on the back of the album. But it was hefty. It had heft. It was heavy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is this so heavy? So my mom and I buy, so mom, I got to buy this album. Okay, fine. We go to eat at this little diner uh, down the street. I tear the cellophane off the album. And inside is not only the record album, there's a poster of the cover. Mm-hmm. There's a lyric sheet that is illustrated by Alan Aldridge. There is a scrapbook that sort of has all these pictures from Elton and Bernie's early career leading up, which is reflective of the autobiographical nature of the album. Yeah, yeah. Even excerpts from Elton's diary. The coolest one is from 1969. If you read this little scrapbook that comes with the album, the vinyl album, it says... You know, went to the store, you know, went to a movie, wrote your song. Like, no big deal. I, I just, I, I, I ran some errands, <laughs> and then I wrote your song, which would be the, you know, that's just how crazy. crazy it is. So this album was so cool, not only because of the album itself and what was on it musically, but Elton John was such a big star at the time that they lavished his albums with these elaborate um, you know album packages yeah so yes. there was a poster there was a, a lyric book uh, and there was this scrapbook and of course there was even a little sheet in there to join the Elton John fan club of course you, you can't, know can't have an album without the Elton and John the cool fan thing club. too on the label the label of the album even has the illustration it doesn't have the album like the um, 
you know, the the record company MCA. Mm-hmm. There's the little picture of Captain Fantastic on the record label. <laughs> it was so cool. I should mention that song that you just played. Yes. Tell me what the whistle blows. Now that's a song about Bernie feeling homesick because he then eventually moved from Northern England, the Lincolnshire area, to London and started living with Elton okay. and his parents. Oh, and okay. so this song, Tell Me When the Whistle Blows, refers to the train whistle that when he, he would go back home to the north of England to visit his family and his friends. Mm. And so the song is kind of a homesick song of, uh, you know, take my money, tell me when the whistle blows because I want to go back home because I'm homesick. So once again, there's some songs on here that are about Elton and Bernie getting together their their own so- their own stories. Mm-hmm. Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. There's some songs about them now writing together. But then there's also some personal songs. This one about Bernie feeling a little homesick. Don't forget, Elton John when they first met was 20. Bernie Taupin was 17. 17 really? years old. When he and Elton started writing, he was 17 years old. He wrote your song when he was 19 years old. See, that is so bizarre because you often see these prodigies. You know, there's a lot of, that go on today. I mean, I'm, uh, for some reason, all that can come to my mind is like Miley Cyrus or somebody who's right. like writing. And, right, right. You know, it's very young and you're like, how did they do, or Lord, right. um, you know, these very young artists. But to think that you can write a song that lasts that lifetime, because I think about me when I was 17, my, my biggest <laughs> Worry was like, I'm going to be late for school today, and when do I get the next like ice cream right. or something like that? He was, so, so think about it. He was 17 years old, <laughs> and he at 17 he moves from his home. Yeah, yeah. To to live with basically strangers initially. This I mean, he bizarre. didn't know this guy. Why would, you, why would you do that? Well, because it was like, well, you know, don't forget, he was born in this rural area. Uh-huh. There were not a lot of uh, opportunities. He was, for a, a while, when he was a little kid, as a part-time job, he worked in a printer's, you know, a printer's thing. He didn't have a lot going for him. Yeah, he didn't saying. really, yeah. he wanted, and so, you know, living in, in London was a, a big thing, but yeah. like I said, but he also... Uh, had these kind of, uh, you know, heartstrings and, uh, you know, apron strings. And there's a line in there that, uh, you know, I, I, I need your apron strings once in a while okay. to go back home. So he did feel he's a young kid at that time and he felt homesick. The, the way that he writes and the imagery he uses is incredible for being such a young guy, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, he was, uh, he credits his uh, his mother uh, and uh, his grand, and I think it was his grandmother on his mother's side for uh, introducing him to a lot of poets like E.E. E. Cummings uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, the um, now the, the, the author blanks from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, so he was he was born on the image, you know, with imagery and metaphor, kind of metaphorical writing, because that's what he uh, would learn. That's what he read when he was a little kid. Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll. So, go. you know, so... Um, the imagery and if you if you if you read his lyrics and i'm somebody i don't know about you Mm -hmm. i i'm a writer i write and a great part of my writing has been influenced by me as a young kid reading bernie toppin's lyrics wow and 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 trying to figure out because i would read the lyrics like i said before that raised and regimented or he he has a very unique way of describing something that we all see but describing it or feel, but describing it in a very unique way, not just a very cliched way. As I said, if you're going to write, oh, geez, I miss home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
it's easy to write a lyric that says, I miss home. Yeah. But he says, I miss your apron strings once in a while. Now, we all know that apron strings are, you know, that's your that kind of feeling. Yeah. yeah. So that's my point. So that influenced me. What I'm saying is, it, no, don't <laughs> don't just write something and don't be lazy. You know, take some time and really, is there a... Is Soak there, it in. Is there yeah. a cooler, but there is a is there a different, unique way? And that's what I think what makes Elton's, uh, Elton's song so unique is really because of Bernie Taupin's lyrics in many ways. Well, the, this is one of the biggest hits that they had. Someone saved my life tonight here... Next on the album. And I think, I, if I remember correctly, Bernie had wrote this song about a tuna sandwich he once ate. Right? Is that, <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> well, now, this is funny. This song was, this was the only hit uh, and the only song released as a single from the album. Mm-hmm. And this album certainly could have had one or two more hits off of it. But mm-hmm. the only reason was that, as I said earlier in our discussion, Elton John was so popular at this time, Mm -hmm. 1975, that they couldn't even keep up with his success. And I'm not joking. In January of of 1975, he had the number one song for two weeks, a remake of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah, on the album. In March. No, it's, well, that's the thing. It's on the remix. That's not on the album. Oh, it wasn't on the original no, album. No, no, it's not on the this album. Okay. That, I, I want to talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was a one-off single. It was a remake. John Lennon is on it. That song was number one for two weeks in January. In March, Philadelphia Freedom comes out as a one-off single. Mm-hmm. Which becomes a number one song, mm-hmm. written for Billie Jean King. This So now it's March. It's still on the charts. Captain Fantastic now comes out, as you said, in May. Yeah. Okay, that's only two months after Philadelphia Freedom, which is still on the charts. So they didn't want to hurt the popularity of Philadelphia Freedom. Mm-hmm. So this album comes out, but someone saves my life. Usually the single is released before the album comes out to, to build interest in the album. Yeah, yeah. But he was so popular and he had so many songs that they had to wait for Philadelphia Freedom to die out, and then they had, and they don't want to just keep releasing songs, so they waited. This song wasn't released until August. The album came out in May. <laughs> they couldn't even keep up with him. That's incredible. Do, do you think that has to do something with his songwriting and uh, his live shows? I mean, like the way that he was just spreading himself so thin as well, far as like another, touring all over no, the no, world. No, another good point. Um, in those days. Uh, and Dick James, he had a, he had this uh, contract with the music publisher, Dick James. Mm-hmm. Dick James, he had to put out two albums a year. Jeez. So what? When he was done writing and recording, they would go on tour to promote it, mm-hmm. and then right off of tour, they'd go back to the studio, record a new one, and then go back. So. I mean, he, that's why his output from 1970 through 1976 was about 15 albums. Oh, my gosh. He was putting out, and that's why my point is, and in that time period, he had seven number one albums in a row putting out two a year. That, that is just mind-boggling. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Oh, and so gosh. what's interesting, though, about Someone Saved My Life tonight, once again, a, 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 a Bernie Taupin lyric about a true story, which I was surprised was not in the Rocket Man film because mm. it was made for it. Someone Saved My Life Tonight refers to Elton was engaged, which they show in the Rocket Man film, to Very a woman. briefly, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this woman did not want Elton to be a musician. He was only 20 at the time. He did not wow. want this w- woman to, she did not want him to be a, uh, a musician. 
Elton John, at very least, was, if not gay, certainly confused about his sexual orientation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why are you getting married? Yeah. So in, and he was so he was very depressed. He was not happy. Of course, and, he's married as a, as well, a very as a, flamboyantly yeah, gay man. Exactly. Well, even at this time, if he was confused, <laughs> and and he, he he says he did not have sex with either sex until he was twenty three years old. I'm glad he held out. Yeah, <laughs> but my point is, so, um, and then at the height of this kind of depression he had, he tried to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Bernie Taupin and Elton joke about it because it was kind of a, a half-baked, no pun intended, mm-hmm. a suicide attempt in that he opened up the stove, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he stuck his head in to maybe get the gas from yeah, the stove, yeah. but he left the window open. Oh. So it wasn't, wow. it was a half-hearted, it was a cry for help. Yeah. So yeah. this song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight, tells the story of how one of his band members by a name of Long John Baldry who was a lead singer in one of Elton's bands called Bluesology. They backed him up. He, he over a beer one night, he said to Elton, what are you doing? First, why are you getting married to this woman? Yeah. You don't love her. You love Bernie more than you love her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want you to be a musician, mm-hmm. and yet that's what you love most. Why are you getting married? Yeah. And so it was on uh, because of that talk that Elton then went and broke off the engagement. So the someone saved my life tonight refers to Long John Baldry. In fact, there's a line in there that says, someone saved my life tonight, Sugar Bear. Oh, and it was... Sugar Bear is, is a nickname for Long John Baldry. Mm-hmm. And, and the John in Long Sugar John Bear. Baldry is the last name for Elton John. Wow! It is not. You just dropped as, some serious knowledge. <laughs> I, there are so many people screaming at their radios. It is right not now. the way the movie portrays it. The John of Elton John. There was a member of his band, Bluesology, by a name by a guy by the name of Elton Dean, mm-hmm. and that's where he got the name Elton from. But he did not get the name John as it is portrayed in the film. He got the name John from his friend and lead singer of the of the band, Long John Baldry. And so the Someone Saved My Life Tonight refers to, and I'll tell you, on this current tour, and I've seen this, this uh, his farewell tour about 15 times now. <laughs> and he's not exaggerating, ladies no, and no. gentlemen, by the way. But uh, the, for me, the most memorable and passionate and moving moment of the 24 songs he, per, he performs mm-hmm. during this concert is when he performs this song now, especially wow. some of say because he's I, you could feel the emotion when he's now reflecting at his uh, on his life at seventy two, and what a mistake that would have been to marry this person and maybe not have this life and this career. Oh my gosh! So that is that holds much more weight than you know any. A lot of songs that he has written, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it is. It, it is. It's all. It's. It's a very. If you listen to those chords at the beginning, that. I mean, it's a very dramatic. It's a very uh, compelling, captivating because it is uh, a, a, a. It's. 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 There's. There's both darkness mm-hmm. in that song about the the misery as well as at the end. There is a redemptive quality when he starts just ref- the refrain over and over. Yeah. Someone save, someone save. You know, it's almost like he's liberated. Yeah. You know, whereas at the beginning, the song is very dark and it and it's kind of plodding along because he's stuck in this depression. And at the end, he's liberated. 
Well, what a beautiful thing, um, you know, have somebody write a song for you, too, the way that Bernie wrote for Yeah, well, as I said, this album is autobiographical, so that Tell Me When the Whistle Blows, that was Bernie's song about being uh, homesick, and it's followed up on the album by Someone Saved My Life Tonight, a song specifically about Elton's situation. Well, we have about eight more songs to get through in about well, we 15 really minutes. Don't. We really don't. <laughs> we do, we, you no, don't no, want to do the remix well, ones? Well, no, because I want to <laughs> tell you. See, this is a thing. Now, when they, when they, you Here, know. Ho- pause on it. Let me get into this next song real quick. Got to yeah. get a meal ticket and then tell me yeah. over it. So here's the thing. The album itself, the official album, when it was released in 1975 in May, has 10 songs. It's awesome because this music goes perfectly with Elton Jim's anger right (laughs) now. Well, it has 10 songs. Now, because of CDs and and record companies wanting to get people to rebuy what they already have, Mm -hmm. they they do, uh, you know, anniversary editions and deluxe editions with bonus tracks and everything like that. So it's so interesting that you actually, and and this is not a knock, I don't don't blame you, but many people think... That the original album also includes Philadelphia Freedom and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah, because uh, on on Apple Music, that's what what we see nowadays. Because they are offering you the album in its bonus track uh, format. Mm. But this album, as I said, is autobiographical, Mm -hmm. and it contained ten songs. And it ends with the song Curtains. Which is sort of putting okay. the curtain down on this story. But from the record company standpoint, don't forget, as I told you before, Lucy Scarlet Diamonds and Philadelphia Freedom never appeared in an album. <laughs> yeah, because it uh, came out later. Yeah, so or okay. before that. So, But it was around the same time period. So they've tacked it on. Okay. But that was not a part of, because those songs have nothing to do with the story. I was kind of Captain curious Fan. about that. Yeah. And I'm like, why so do you So those, those are not official parts of the thing. Now, okay, this, you know what we're going to do then? We're going to axe those last three yes, so more that, time. No, yeah, I would, I would, I would not even comment, because that is not the album. <laughs> you would just go you silent, came, then I'd have you to. You asked me to talk about the Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. I don't make, I, I'm not putting it on the, no, I, you're the fire to your feet or anything uh, to do these songs. No, no, I'm just saying, we are here to discuss the proper album, See, not is, the manufactured album by the t- <laughs> by the record company. This is why I love that we got you for this album because no one is more passionate about Elton John besides yeah, no, Elton Jim don't, Toronto. Don't get me wrong, I love Elton's version of "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," and I think "Philadelphia Freedom" is one of his best hit singles. But they are not on that album. <laughs> All right, let's. That's got to get a meal ticket. Yeah, so meal ticket is, is actually one of the few rockers on the album. Yeah, and it's got a nice little guitar be- guitar riff. You feel it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this is uh, another song once again about the the struggles that they had. Got to get a meal ticket is kind of the uh, reference to a manager or the hangers on mm-hmm. who don't have any talent of their own. Okay, okay, that but makes a lot of sense. They want to get a meal ticket, mm-hmm. so the meal ticket is the performer. Of course. I got to get a meal ticket to survive. I need I, I because I don't have any talent on my own. So I'm a hangers-on if I'm a, a you know a, a, a record company guy or a promoter. I need somebody to make me money. I got to find yeah. me a meal ticket. So the performer is being kind of 
exploited by the hangers-on, and the 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 uh, the performer is the hangers-on meal ticket. So it's kind of a bitter song. Man, you know it's so cool to see it from from your lens and this perspective now because you you see it through the songwriter Bernie and the songwriter Elton rather than a guy who's like breaking up with his girlfriend and writing a song about being sad or well, like and, the cliche things that you often find songs. And I'll tell you that's the one thing I have to say. And you saw the film, so you tell me. Um, and and I've always, you know, knowing the Elton John story as well as I do, um, and when you when you listen to this album and the tone of it, mm-hmm. as I said on this on this album, there are several songs mm-hmm. that refer to the sleazy yeah. uh, part of the music business. Mm-hmm. And so, what was which really kind of I guess uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but what's kind of depressing or at least unfortunate, I guess, from my standpoint is. With all the success that Elton John and Bernie Taupin have had, I hope it's been fun. <laughs> right? Because when That's I'm... That's a really good point. When I That's hear really the songs point. that he writes about their rise mm-hmm. and their, their rise not only from obscurity, but even at their pinnacle, it's... It's not always, it's not like, wow, this is the coolest thing on earth. There's always Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the song. You yeah, know, yeah. You can't plant me in your penthouse. I'm going back to my plow. Hmm. He, he's, he's, he, at that time, he's only 23, and he's already fed up with the music business. He, he wants to go back home. He wrote Goodbye Yellow Brick Road when he was 23 years right. old. Right. Yeah, 1973. Jeez. Like I said, he was born in 1950. So even within three years of their their success meteoric success bernie was already feeling like this is a assembly line mm-hmm. and there's just users and uh, you know he's already kind of disillusions don't that's why the line this boy's too young to be singing the blues he's mm-hmm. only 23 and oh. he's already sad yeah and yet he should be excited because he's part of the you know this this uh, as you said this meteor meteoric uh, meteoric uh, rise mm-hmm. and yet he's really not happy so i guess this leads quite well into the next song better off dead as probably is another bitter song that they have. But, you know, it, it just shows because they had gone through things that other songwriters never will go through. It's the toil and the stress of being, you know, told you suck and your songwriting is no good. And then being like, no, 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 I, I know what I have inside of me. If you just let me show and then like work through it, then we can get it. And you're still getting put down. And then even when they were famous, they often show the, the struggles of, of everyone being fake around Elton and, you know, his, his manager. Um, you know, letting him down and, and just you know p- using him as like a as like a pawn almost, and maybe that's why he's he's been through so much that he is hard to enjoy the the fruits I of his hope, labor. I hope it was fun. I hope it's been fun uh, because, as I said, a lot of the songs that at least are influenced by their early or even their late or their entire career. It's always, at least from Bernie's viewpoint, mm-hmm. the downside. Now, don't forget, Bernie doesn't also get the adulation of being on stage. Yeah. Oh, true. And, true you know, he's true. he's in the background. You know, so I mean, Elton may Elton's view of of that rise and Elton's view of the success that they had may be 180 degrees different because yeah. Bernie is not on stage performing for two and a half hours. He's not getting this un un unconditional love and outpouring of no praise what, when yes. he's on stage. So Elton's view may be a little different than Bernie's, but I think they have shared enough of the... Now, this Better Off Dead is kind of, once again, 
uh, just a viewpoint of the uh, Denmark Street in uh, in London mm-hmm. is where a lot of the record uh, record companies and record uh, stores and record businesses used to be located on. Uh, if you'd say like Madison Avenue is where in New York where all the advertising agencies are. Yeah. Well, in in London in the sixties and seventies it was Denmark Street where all the music business was, and so this is kind of a story of just a. A walk down Denmark Street where they used yeah. to hang out. I after love they this w- part, by the way. Oh well. And this uh, is a great song that Elton does in concert with uh, his percussionist Ray Cooper, mm. and it's just him. Elton just does this with his piano and Ray Cooper banging these giant timpanis and all these cymbals, and it's it's an amazing sight to see. They use a cool production technique in this song of these echoey. Reverby drums that are just like over, like it's very, um, I don't know, like uh, what am I thinking? Like, uh, like Sergeant Pepper's, uh, you know, with drums, right. like uh, that deep, deep bellow, or, or like uh, almost Bruce Springsteen ish. I'm well, sure he used a lot, got a lot of influence from this well, album. As when well, when they would go into the studio for any album, but especially uh, this one, uh, this was recorded at the, at the Caribou Ranch in uh, just outside of Denver. Where, okay. Which is owned hey, by the right. the rock group Chicago. The their their manager really owned it. Jimmy Gersio owned, and so uh, uh, in in the mid seventies and early eighties, uh, some of the best albums released during that period were um, recorded at the Caribou Ranch because it was a, it was a whole complex. They had a a, a world class recording studio. Plus, they had little cottages. Huh. So the bands okay. would just live there. For two or three months, That's you got to do, and yeah. they would record. They would live there. They, they, and then the, it's a gorgeous scenery out in Colorado. So that was one of the more popular, uh, you know, places. And if, if you go, and sadly, the Caribou Ranch has recently closed. I don't know if it's been sold or not, but if you go on Wikipedia and look up Caribou Ranch, you will see a list of some of the greatest um, rock and roll albums that were recorded there. But to, so they were there, and usually. Gus Dudgeon, as I said before, cannot be um, discounted for his contribution to Elton mm-hmm. John's early career as a producer. They would spend two or three days, to your point about the drum yeah, sound, yeah. before they even started to record. They would spend two or three days just getting the drum sound right. That's so cool. Yeah, before I mean, that's they, so rock and roll. Yeah, before they ever laid down a track. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, Nigel Olson, uh, who is now still playing with Elton John, there was a period when he didn't play with them. When, as I said, Elton broke up this band, and so mm-hmm. Elton, Nigel and uh, the bass player D. Murray were both let go surprisingly and shockingly because Nigel Olson is really not only a, a great drummer; he's a great drummer for Elton John. Yeah, he yeah. makes his. He is part of that, as I said before, the Elton John sound. So thankfully, uh, for the last almost 20 years now, Nigel has been back with the band and is playing some great drums. But uh, but to your point, I'm glad you, you, you heard that drum sound because it is very unique on this song. Yeah. It's almost, it's, kind of, it, it's both muffled and yet bellowing, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they, they would spend hours and days to get the right drum sound for every song. Man, the the in- intricacies of this album, I just I'm just floored by it. And I knew this would be an, an, an amazing album to speak about because it it was, did really put well, and, Elton and it on sounds the and it sounds good and it is recorded so well. And once again, I, I, yes. I mentioned Gus yes. Dudgeon. Listen if you if please please first of all, if you don't have Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy in your library or on your iPod or on your vinyl collection or in your seat, whatever it is you find music today, mm-hmm. I would urge you to get it, but I would really urge you to listen close. And this is one reason I would get this one on vinyl, because I think you can really hear 
um, the production value and the and the way each instrument uh, both has a uh, its own moment yeah. as well as it's incorporated into an overall sound. It's 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 really recorded uh, just beautifully. It's it's a lot of great writing, and that's the next yeah. song, writing. <laughs> And this is uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. I thought this could have easily been uh, a single. It's got just this nice little bouncy, you know, uh, little melody, and it's a, a breezy kind of song. And uh, it's 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 basically a um, a celebration of their songwriting yeah. together. Yeah. You know, and uh, and if you read the lyrics, you know, it's it's kind of the. The the day he just says you know my I'm getting up to shave so it's kind of like the daily routine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. part of Elton and Bernie's daily you know we get up and we go to the grocery store blah 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 their daily routine was writing songs get up and, and so, write yeah so this is kind of a a nice little insight you know and, and that's a great line there instigation into the navigation of our newfound craft <laughs> so their newfound craft is, is songwriting yeah the songs you know, they're creating you know and so. So, you know, and it's always half and half. That refers to the fact that Bernie has the lyrics, Elton has the music. It's it, always half and half. It's so happy. Elton must have been in a really good mood when he wrote this song, when he put yeah. the, the yeah, melody yeah, behind yeah, it. Here's a great line here, too. Will the things we wrote today sound as good tomorrow? Okay. Listen. <laughs> you know, will we still be, you know, Will we still be? I mean, don't forget, this is 1975. They're, you know, uh, Bernie's 25, and he's wondering, "Geez, this is great now, but will we still be writing?" And here they are, 50, you know, 25 it's years later, still writing, and they are. You know what? This is why I love doing this podcast is because you learn so much more. And now I'm going to go back and listen to this album again and know these stories and uh, just appreciate it more. Um, let's get through this next song real quick. We got "We All Fall in Love Sometimes." Now this is another one that I think, if this had been released to the radio as a single Mm -hmm. it would have been a huge hit it is a gorgeous love song to me it's one of his best love songs ever it's on a par with some of the bigger hit ballads that he's got that are so well known like don't let the sun go down on me yeah or your song and this song is another one that you have to really read the lyrics um and and what's unique about this song you know, it's called We All Fall in Love Sometime. Mm-hmm. And as you will see when you see the Rocketman movie, and you have, uh, that movie in many ways is the story of Elton and Bernie. Yeah, and it their, really was. And their relationship really and how it is a and how it is a very tight-knit, brotherly relationship. They love each other, not in that way. You know, Bernie has been married four times. He is a heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 there may have been some attraction on Elton's side, but it was made very clear to, to Elton that Bernie, I'm not into that. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it is a love story. It is. It, it is. is a love story, even though it's not a, uh, it's a platonic love story. Yeah. So I, this I, song is written to Elton by Bernie, that we all fall in love sometimes. Oh. And it is, so it is a love song about them and to him but it's not a romantic love story if you listen to the lyrics you know did we did we shouldn't we could we i don't know sometimes we're so blind should we can we write should we write i don't know this tells their story in as well 
Man. So if you listen to the, you're struggling through the day when even your best friend says, we all fall in love, you know, that they're their best friends. So if you look at the lyrics, it's written from a friend to a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's not a romantic love song between a man and a woman or a man and a man. This is about two friends who are who have a love for each other on a, on a on a on a on a brotherly or whatever kind of basis. So it's it, it, it's it, it certainly can be a romantic song if you want to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But I think if you know the story behind it and the um, you know what it was written about, uh, you and listen to the lyrics. It's it's just a gorgeous song. And once again, listen to the production on this. You know. You know, so there's clean. that there's that drum again, so and that clean. little you know. And then, and what I love about this song too, now all of a sudden it's it's kind of this slow song, and I'll listen to this. It starts to rise. You know, and so now the, the, the story, now running with the losers for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, our empty sky was filled with laughter. Empty sky is the name of their first album. It's all coming together. Yeah. See, so are you saying that maybe I should uh, I should send this to my buddies from college and just be like, you know, I fall in love sometimes. <laughs> well, <laughs> they look at me weird. You know, but uh, but no, but so that to me, it's it's really it's a gorgeous song, and yeah. I was so shocked and impressed and and relieved by chance. I was clicking around. I believe it was on American Idol. One of if it was either it was either American Idol or uh, The Voice, I'm not sure which one. But just this past season, just a few months ago, one of the contestants sang we all and, and wow. played it and performed. We all love some. We all fall in love sometimes. And I was like, how the heck did this kid, who's probably 20 years old, know about this song? And he did it very well. And I was so impressed because it's such an unknown album track, deep track. Off of this album that's you know over uh, forty five years old, almost, and I was like, "Wow, how the heck did this kid pull this song out? You know, where did he pull this song out?" Yeah, of? and so I was really cool because I said, "I really believe it's one of my all time Elton John favorite uh, you know songs, and it's just a gorgeous song." I, Jim, I love just your passion for Elton John, and, and that's <laughs> that's so cool. But this is our last song. In yes, fact, it is. We are winding down this pot. Okay, you know. it is not the so other we, four songs besides, on that besides CD. Besides, we got to play "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" because that was on the well, original that, one, right? No, no oh, I'm, I'm telling I'm you, so curtains <laughs> is the last song because it's the you're you're putting down the curtain on this story. Lucy was not on the album. Philadelphia Freedom was not on the album. Jim has steam coming from House his ears. House of Cards was not on the album. <laughs> One Day at a Time, which is a John Lennon song that's a cover version that Elton did, uh, is not on the official proper Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy album. So let's listen to Curtains. And I thought, Jim, for this last song, we've now, been going over it pretty well. Oh, do you have a deepest story behind this one? Well, here. This old I used to know this old scarecrow. He was my song. Scarecrow was the first song that Elton and Bernie ever wrote. Really? It was never recorded. It was never put on an album. But that was the first song that they wrote together. It was called Scarecrow. And so wow. that's why it's, once again, now in the, in the end of this, their story, you know, from the beginning of Captain Fantastic now to the last song on the album, a final reference to... Their partnership, their memory of the first song they ever wrote. I love that. Yeah. I love and he goes, beneath these branches I once wrote 
such childish words for you. He's reminiscing, you know. I handed, I, I, I had a dandelion that said the time had come. An early song of theirs was called A Dandelion Blows in the Wind. So there's okay. a reference to their early work when they were just beginning to, to know each other as friends and to work together as songwriters. So this is another beautiful song. Yeah. You know what would be really funny if... I wonder what songs they didn't write together, like one where Bernie just didn't like a shirt he was wearing one day or something like that. <laughs> well, there, like, I mean, there are like some. Throws it away. There are some songs. I said Elton goes through the stack, and sometimes he'll just toss it if it doesn't attack him. You know, if it doesn't, uh, you know. Well, uh, it doesn't like him. yeah, because like we t- said before, the, it feels like these are coming from Elton's soul. When he's well, these, like I said, that's what's so special about this album because this album of all his albums is the most personal and I believe this all 10 songs on this album he is personally collect, connected to and he is singing them from his heart and from as if he did write these lyrics of all the songs that they've written together I think this album his voice you can just hear in his voice his connection to each one of these songs because yeah. he fully understands them because in this case he did live them yes um, I'm going to use this time, and that was a beautiful way to end it, um, to ask you three questions I've always wanted to ask you. Oh, okay. I have wow. Them, I have them prepared. But they're El- Elton-based. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was wondering. I'm not, ready. I'm not ready to make all these revelations here. You know, give me a break. All right, number one. <laughs> when you go out to sing karaoke, what's your go-to Elton karaoke song? Wow. Good question. Um, I would say because you're the biggest fan. I mean, this yeah, is. I mean, well, I'll you know tell you, the whole. I like, will tell you the first time I ever sang in public, and I and I have performed on the stage. I've uh-huh. been in a few musicals, so I, I, I I'm not a great singer. Catch them all over Chicago and yeah, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, but the first time I ever sang a song, so I'm going to count this. Even though uh, when I when I sing karaoke, I usually sing uh, uh, a Wonderful Life by Louis Armstrong. <laughs> So I and I do the voice. So <laughs> yes. and yes, I think would. to myself, what a wonderful world. So that's always a crowd Stay pleaser. Of, uh, like star of stage and screen. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but <laughs> I, the first song I was in high school. I was a sophomore. Uh, I was at baseball practice. It was raining. Mm-hmm. A piano, for some reason, was in our was in the gym. They were doing some event that that day, and we yeah. were kind of waiting for the rain to stop. We're just hanging around. And my baseball coach sat down and started to play your song. Oh, okay. So I went over there and I started to sing it while he was playing. And so then the guy who was setting up the gym for this event, Mm -hmm. he came by and gave me a live mic. Wow. And so I sang in front. I mean, I always was singing in front of my mirror, but I sang with the music. I never did that before either. But I'd sung this song so many times in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. And he played it so well. And so the first time I ever sang in any kind of public way was your song. And so I will say that one. Man. Yeah. And that's how you got your record deal. Yeah, right. Incredible. <laughs> All right. So question number two. How many times have you asked Elton John to come on your show? Uh, <laughs> well, I, 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 I could ask him every day if I wanted. Uh, I haven't really never asked him, actually, because I know that the answer would probably be no. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, that I mean, that's the one thing. I have been lucky enough to have met him four times. I have been lucky enough to uh, have written him letters, and he has written personal letters back to me. Yes, yeah. I have two of those. I saw are, that on, yeah, on the show the other which day. Which are very special. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, 
Uh, I have never really sat down and interviewed him, mm -hmm. and that would still be uh, the greatest uh, moment if I could really just sit down because I, like we just did here today, yes. I would ask him about the music. You know, there's all this stuff about the career, career and the drugs and the, the and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But I, what attracted me first was not the costumes, was not the glasses, mm -hmm. was not all the peripheral. It was the music. And I would love to, like the one question I would love to ask him was, do you know what it's like not to have your talent? I can't sit down at a piano and do what he does. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even think twice about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, does he really understand? Can he grasp yeah. the talent that he has? And and when you sit down, do you understand? And do you, do your are, is are your hands moving before your brain? Mm -hmm. or do you even know you're doing this? I would love to ask him that. Well, that actually was my last question. Was <laughs> so I guess I'll just toss this yeah, in I would, the garbage. I, I just think I, I'm I am in awe of of of, of many uh, you know <laughs> singer songwriters or any kind of songwriters where they sit down and just can pluck these these things out of nowhere. But like I said, with Elton, he is such a reactive writer, as I said, because he reacts to the lyrics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and he's someone you know he doesn't have um, vaults filled with unreleased songs mm -hmm. because he's really a writer for hire. Yeah. When they have to put an album out, Bernie writes 15 songs and sends them to Elton. It's not like Elton sitting at a piano all day just kind of writing songs. He writes when he has to. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. So one last thing that we do on this podcast is we rate the albums. Now, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing. So what do you think I'm going to say about this one? <laughs> the, the scale itself, as our listeners know, is the Avenged 7 scale. So it's 1 to 7. 4 is the neutral number. And Jim, I don't know if I should ask you or should I just guess. Uh, what do you give this album? In, to paraphrase the great line from Spinal Tap. This goes up to eight. <laughs> this goes to 11. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of 11, if, when 10 is the top, yes. Uh, if seven is your top, then this is an eight. This As is I, an eight. I think that uh, this really, if you're an Elton John fan, you can't help but appreciate it. And I hope that I've been able to offer some insight. But, but if you're looking for just um, an album that is that is filled with... A lot of great musicianship, mm -hmm. great songwriting, and great vocal um, performance, and knowing this little behind-the-scenes story of uh, the, uh, the, the uh, autobiographical story of them, I think this is a great listening experience. And I, and, and as I said, while it was this number one album, it, sadly, it was in it was released at this time when his career was so chaotic and so um, uh, successful that sadly, this album, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. So I'm actually very glad that we sat down and talked about it. And Same. If, if I can um, just turn one more person onto it that's great and we should mention that about two or three years ago i gave you the poster you did you, i was waiting to because <laughs> i have up. so many issues i have so <laughs> many different versions of this on, on on an album that i had i had so many of the posters and i said you know michael's a nice guy and you were talking about how much you like the album yeah and uh and i had first met you and we were bonding about music and so uh one of the days that we were working together i just 
gave you the posters. And, and as you say, you, it's hung up. In it's your, hung up in my apartment awesome. right now to this day. Well, as listeners, a little behind the scenes, I, I produced for Elton Jim uh, for, for many, let's say years. Yeah, a few <laughs> I've months on for, my yeah, podcast. Yeah. And you can, uh, let, where, do you, where, where can we plug your podcast real quick? Uh, yeah, it's called Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, which is a takeoff on Captain Fantastic. Yes. It's yes. podcasting. Now, I, now, my podcast, I, I use that because of my Elton Jim n- moniker, mm-hmm. my nickname, so I figured a podcastic. But uh, but my podcast talks about, uh, sometimes I'll talk about Elton, but sometimes I'll talk about Bruce Springsteen or other music or anything. So it's not just Elton bass. Yeah, yes. Um, in fact, this in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking about how upset I was at the um, conclusion of the National Spelling Bee, but I, I'll talk about that later. I, I more I appreciate your times <laughs> when you go off on riffs about how much you don't like A and W root beer. Right, exactly. That's one of no. my favorites. Yeah, see, I'm not a, I'm not a big root beer guy. <laughs> well, Jim, this has been a total pleasure. You know what? If we had more time, I think you and I could talk all day. We could. We both. Well, like, I, the real. one thing I like talking about you is because you have a passion for music. I have a passion for music, and I think that's the, the best thing. Uh, what's so great about music? I think it's a it's a great common denominator. Or people that don't even know one another. Yes, I can't tell you how many times I've been to a party, mm-hmm. and a song will come on, and you know if I know it, uh, if especially by a, a group or a, an act that is one of my favorites, you know I'm always singing the song one way or the other, and someone might come up, oh, you and and I'm, you will, you don't even have to know someone, yeah. and it's an immediate bond. And then they start telling you about their favorite songs, and mm-hmm. you start telling them. And suddenly, it's a uh, it's a three hour conversation. Now this wasn't three hours; it was only about an hour and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we could have probably gone on for a day if we wanted to. In fact, all, all I used actually three USBs for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is awesome, and we really could because there's something about music that's just it, it's different inside of you. It speaks every single language. And let me tell you, Elton John's Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. I'm going to give it the rating. I was going to say something lower, but after going through it with you, I'm giving it a full-on seven. Oh, this is my first excellent. seven ever on the, the podcast. The first seven ever? It, yes, wow. ever. Wow. Ever. I do, well, then I consider my job done. <laughs> and with that, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Two Dudes, One Disc. Let's carry out with your favorite song here. See you next week.